Welcome back to the Delicious Podcast and this special series in collaboration with the Food Foundation. I'm Julie Smith and this month I'm introducing you to the young ambassadors behind the Right to Food podcast who are campaigning against children's food insecurity and poverty. The ambassadors have written the Children's Right to Food Charter, calling for government action to tackle children's food insecurity and obesity. And in this series for Delicious, they're exploring how COVID has revealed some really serious gaps in the food system and how to fix them. This week, 16-year-old Felix Platt and 18-year-old Rabia Hussein are visiting some of the food clubs featured in the Right to Food podcast over the last year, where whole communities have come together to feed hungry kids and to support everyone's mental health. This is a BME community centre, so most people are coming from the black minority ethnic group. As we all know, looking at statistics, this is the most affected group with this pandemic. COVID has peeled back the layers of the complexities of food poverty in modern Britain. But the stories behind the headlines reveal an often uplifting story of resilience, community and compassion. We get food from um, individuals from their allotments, beetroots, courgettes. I'll try to visualise it, broccoli. (laughs) And so the community really comes together to... Um, know that what they're growing they're growing for a purpose and knowing that this food is going to children as well healthy wholesome food organically grown food it, it just shows how you know the community can come together across the country we met an extraordinary bunch of volunteers who've come together to support those in need donate food and innovate radical new ways to feed the country. In Bristol, um, the food clubs have been set up in 13 different settings. Um, we're also, because we're getting um, our word out there a bit more, we're getting local donations from local growers, um, from allotments, things like that as well, so we can really enhance the amount of fruit and veg that we can offer. And behind the boxes of surplus food, we heard the stories of struggling parents like Charlene, for whom food clubs like the Evelyn Community Store in Lewisham have become a lifesaver. I found that at the beginning of lockdown, it was a real struggle, challenging, stressful and a worrying time. Having a child that suffers from anxiety, fearing that every time we would go out or leave the house, she would be catching COVID-19 and would die from this. Um, it's been It's been a tough time. Thank God for Evening Community Store. If I didn't have that during this whole COVID-19 lockdown, I can honestly say I don't know what I would have done for food. I don't know what I would have done for seeing a friendly face, having a chat. Um, You know, then the volunteers and the organisation caring for my children and my own sanity You know, I I literally don't know what I would have done. Food clubs, the subscription version of a drop-in food bank, have popped up all over the country during COVID. Natasha Ricketts has been running a nursery at the Evelyn Community Centre for over 30 years and persuaded the council to let her open a food club where surplus food from all the major supermarkets distributed by the charity Fair Share could help to feed her community. She explained how the subscription system works. We wanted members to to not have that embarrassment of coming here. So we charge a small membership of £3.50. That's every Tuesday. That £3.50 
gets them about 20 to 25 pounds worth of shopping. And we try and make sure that there's an even balance. So we make sure that, you know, if we don't have a lot of fruit and veg from the membership money that's paid, we will then, we, that goes back in for us to spend out. We also get a bonus uh, shop on a Friday and members do not pay for that. That is completely free. And any surplus food that I pick up in between going to fair share, so any surplus, that is additionally free of charge as well. So some weeks, they probably could get about 40 to £45 worth of shopping for £3.50. The vouchers are amazing and they've helped a lot. But why is it we have to constantly keep fighting for them each half term? It, it's, yeah, that I think for me, the hardest part was, was watching parents panic, knowing children are going to be at home. If you've got two children, you've got two boys, and they eat men-sized portions three times a day with snacks, you know, that voucher's not really going to cut the mustard nobody's turned away uh i'm a safeguarder because i have the nursery so i do have members speak to me privately and i have to admit when i first opened the store somebody said to me they don't have three pound fifty i was like what of course you've got three we've all got everyone's got three pound fifty in their pocket and i realized that sometimes people haven't even got a pound in their pocket so members will come to me or if members have been missing from the store for a few weeks we'll give them a call and nine times out of ten it's because they're embarrassed they haven't got any money but nobody's turned away whether you have three pound fifty two pound fifty one pound fifty or nothing you will still get the same amount of shopping as everybody else over in thanet karen had discovered a similar subscription-based food club popped up in a disused hairdresser on margate high street she realised how important it could be for her family. I just walk past and I see all the lovely fruit and vegetables in the window and I, I just wanted to find out what it was all about, really. I have six children. Um, uh, one of them lives in Margate with, with, with us and she suffers from anxiety uh, on benefits. Um, she's got three children, one of them whom lives with me she's got two other small children this sort of place would be fantastic for her but she will struggle to come in because of her anxiety problems Um, she doesn't go out much so therefore apart from children going play school they don't go out much I normally go and get them and take them home take them places and um, a, a place like this really does help because I'm feeding them as well It's been a revolution in food retail for millions of people all over the country. Kate explained how our kitchen on the Isle of Thanet, the food club which Karen had just discovered on Margate High Street, had changed her shopping habits forever. You can get a weekly shop for about £11-£12 for food um, and then just go out and get my usual everyday toiletries, so it's really helped. In fact, because it's tins, I can do quite a big shop um, and it lasts all month because it's all tins. So, yeah. My mum's living with me. I'm caring for her now because she needs it. Um, I've got um, a teenage boy who's 16, a boy who's five with learning difficulties, um, challenging behaviour. Um, so I run around ragged. <laughs> Felix asked Sharon Goodyear, the brains behind our kitchen, how things had changed for people like Karen and Kate. Do you know, Felix, 
I think we've become sort of a normal bit of planet now. Our membership is growing exponentially. I've got nearly 800 customers, members now. But some of those are families. Well, most of them are. So that's thousands of people. The We're opening a third shop, yes. As we become more normal, as more people come into us, word on the street is... It's okay in there, you know. It's um, you're you're okay to go in. So it's those sort of issues about coming across our doorstep are gradually vanishing, and people are becoming more confident. They're beginning to take ownership of it. They're beginning to complain sometimes to Felix, um, which is absolutely. Fine. They talk to us a lot more. We listen a lot more. More entitlement. And that you can't feel entitled and nervous at the same time, I don't reckon. It's it's great to hear about how uh, people are becoming more comfortable accessing the service. And one great thing that you do is you help people as well with their cooking skills, taking their reliance off more unhealthy foods, which a lot of lower income families are forced to get. Um how can people improve their cooking skills, especially when they might not have had the opportunity in school to learn them? I know, that's a real shame. I started off in life as a home economics teacher, Felix. I love it. I, it should never have been taken out of school curriculum. Well, it's difficult at the moment. We do little dems. We put simple recipes with videos up on our Facebook page. We talk to people, we do the meal kits, we do them simple recipe kits. But really, we need to cook together, don't we? We need to go back to cooking together. So I think that bit is on hold a bit, Felix, until we can come together and do things more practically. Who knew before COVID that so many of us would be so interested in the needs of others? Felix became an ambassador for the Food Foundation after speaking up for thousands of young people who, like him, lived in large families with small resources. His interview on the Right to Food podcast last summer catapulted him into the pages of The Observer and showed us behind the doors of a middle England struggling to feed its children. As a volunteer for his local youth group, he wanted to know what Sharon thinks her team gets out of offering so much of their time. I've asked myself that again and again because my volunteers are my absolute all. If I had to pay people to do this work, I couldn't reach the price point that my members need me to reach, yes? Um, it's a combination of circumstances, how I get my volunteers. Mainly, it's because I've been... I mean, I'm, one, I'm an overnight success story, Felix. It's only taken me four years to get to this point. And over those four years, I have built up contacts. Yes, I've found out what volunteers want to be able to do, yes? And I make it really, really satisfying for them and I also give them a huge measure of control yeah why do you do that what do you get out of it uh, I really want to try and help people in the community and I do a lot of work with my youth group group we still reach out and help vulnerable people especially young people in the area and raise raise awareness around the, the issues that they face 
I think you just got to have empathy and think about how 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 it would feel to be in their situation. On like, and if you and if you have had like experiences of like food shortage in the past, you kind of get the feeling that it could have been if things have turned out a little differently, it could have been you standing there asking for food. So you've got to try and like step into their shoes and try and do what you came there to do, which is to try and help people. Over at the Evelyn Community Store, Ravia catches up with Natasha to see how her membership has grown since we first met her in the Right to Food podcast last summer. Our numbers have doubled. Doubled, if not kind of now going like tripling. So we had about but 30 to 40 members if we had people sort of because we do often get people walking past that are homeless and just say if you've got any bread that I can have when Covid hit we had a lot of crisis uh, from schools phoning up and asking us if we could cater for families that were now shielding isolating um, and slowly but surely people would, our members would come in and say my neighbour is struggling can she join and then our numbers all of a sudden just crept up and we're now in the hundreds um so you can imagine for each member that comes in i'd say well over three quarters of them have somebody else at home so we're not just feeding them we could be feeding another adult at home or we could be feeding several children and that person that comes into store has there been any difficulties with the numbers increasing in supplying the food in buying it once our numbers started increasing we knew there were going to be some hurdles that we would need to sort of jump over and that was looking at the amount of food that we gave out at that time how much more we could give out with what we had fair share also was aware of the, the situation they were adding more kilos to us we also had a lot more people coming in and i would say in the first first lockdown we had people that didn't even come from, you know, this borough. They were from other boroughs coming down. And the amount of donations of food, uh, um, nappies, formula, things like that. So if it wasn't for them, we probably would have struggled a lot more. So i got to say, not only did we create a community, but we brought other communities into our community as well. The success of the Evelyn Community Store went viral. Natasha and her fellow volunteers and two best mates, Dawn Atkinson and Chris Norman, were even awarded the honour of becoming co-mayoresses of Lewisham. Chris told Rabia about sharing the chain. Um, well, it was a bit surreal in the very beginning. Um, and especially as, you know, you couldn't tell anybody for, an, for you know, for quite a while. Um, and I always remember just, I was down at the shops and as I went to walk across the road, some lady went, oh, congratulations. And I'm thinking... Who's she talking to? And then it kind of dawned on me. Um, so, yeah, I think the three of us were all, you know, completely taken aback. And I think it did take an awful lot of time to sink in. I think the, the one day it really sunk into me was um, I did Black History Month um, and raised the flag. And that was the first time we'd actually, you know, got to see a chain. Um, but other than that, yeah, I mean, we, we used to look at each other and just burst out you know we used to have a giggle and go oh my god we're mayoresses <laughs> and they knew immediately what to do with their new superpowers you know basically really if you know from the store when we're trying to write to people you know volunteer from the Evelyn community store fine you know that'll get to reception mayoress solution gets you right to the top and what they really needed was a new delivery van our ultimate goal was to be able to either raise enough money so that we could buy 
a, a small second-hand van, or if we were ever going to be lucky, get one donated. We didn't actually think that would really happen. So we had formed relationships with the likes of the CEO of Tesco's and the CEO of Waitrose. And I just think because there's three of us and we're three very strong-minded women that will get the job done no matter what, they didn't have a choice but to respond to us in, in the first instance. And I think they came down and saw what we did and realised that it's not something that we've just set up. We were here way before Marcus Rashford. They saw that all the volunteers' passion, they saw all their drive and how important it is to us to get food out to people, to close the hunger gap. When they asked if there was one thing we could do for you, and I think Chris was the mouthpiece there and said, uh, well, we would love a van and thought no more of it. We just thought we'd casually slip it in and think no more of it. Not in our wildest dreams did we ever think, not only did they give us a van, but they've put our name all over the van and they have sustained it. Now, you're looking at two rival supermarkets with two different completely clientels have come together and put their name on that. And for us, we were blubbering wrecks, I've got to tell you. (laughs) Sharon has been getting what she asks for for years and making sure that our kitchen on the Isle of Thanet was a private membership food club rather than food bank, tick a lot more boxes for funders. She told Felix why. I know it's not very revolutionary, is it, Felix? (laughs) Membership only to have a private members food club. Um, It's because I'm not in the business of starting the revolution quite yet. I'm in the business of getting food efficiently and many charities are not as efficient as they should be. Funders are not going to give me money if they think it's going to people who don't need it, yes? So I have to have a system where I can show funders particularly that I am reaching the people they want me to reach. So, And also, for practical reasons, Felix, I can't set up against Tesco's quite yet. What do the funders want to know? The funders want to know... The truth, Felix, they want to know what it's really like on the ground floor. And it's amazing how difficult people can be to reach who are in dire need. By the time they get to that position in life, they're shut down, they're wary. Yes, they are. They're not going to open up. They are difficult to reach. The funders also, the place they get their money from... They have to meet criteria as well, yes? So it's about being able to say you're using the money in the best way possible to meet the needs of the people who really are in need at that point in time. Otherwise, frankly, Felix, you become a too-hot political potato. You're not really in the charitable area. You're in the political area. If you're doing it for everybody, you're setting up to make real revolutionary change in the food system. Whose responsibility do you feel it is to make good food cheaper and more accessible and make sure that the poorest in our society and the most vulnerable are getting the good food they need? It is criminal that we have got to this point, yes? 
At the beginning of the pandemic, I had people on my doorstep saying, is this how they're going to starve us out? All right? Because the shelves were empty, they were frightened. Felix, the government has to take a completely different vision and a completely different course of action on this. We need to put political motions in place here. We have to value each and every one of us. It is my opinion that food and and money should be separated. You know that the National Health Service is free at the point of use. Everybody should have access to good food. It, it just, when I found out all that evidence about how you couldn't recover from COVID, you were more likely to get it if you were impoverished and your diet was poor. I mean, for heaven's sake, Felix, how much more evidence do we need? They say like COVID's a great leverer, but it ain't. It, it just shows how bad it is. Do you feel like the government um, uses great projects like yours to um, make excuses not to help, and they just turn a blind eye to poverty, and because they think that what good people like you will just deal with it, they don't need to put any effort into it. Felix, you have hit the nail on the head every day. I wonder whether I am actually supporting systems that I disapprove of fundamentally, yes? But what choice do I have that people need this now? I very carefully did not set up a food bank. I think food banks institutionalise poverty. They make people helpless, yes? You do it to people. I'm doing it with people, alongside them. I'm trying to empower. But you are, I am locked into the systems, Felix. Yes, if I get too revolutionary, they'll shut me down. It's a tricky question for so many food clubs all over the country. Natasha is clear about her priorities. No child should ever know what hunger really feels like. So we're trying to close that gap slowly. But we're a small pebble in a massive ocean. And what I'm frightened is ourselves and all the other little hubs that have set themselves up through COVID have made it too easy for the government to kind of take a seat back. And that's the frustrating part for me, that we're doing their job. At the very beginning, when we set up the food store, we kind of just thought we'd be a stopgap between then and now kind of thing. Um, But the more we got deeper into it, the more I realised that it isn't actually our duty to be feeding communities, but we are. And we're proof that they still need it because we're two years in. It's not just the government now, it's the government before and before. You know, and we go back so far. Places like us make it too easy for them to not be responsible. And it's not just in Britain that hunger is outsourced. Andy Fisher is the author of Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. Rabia asked him how hunger had become an industry in the USA. We've had food banks for 40 years, and our food banks are quite different than yours. We have 200, at least 200, 250 food banks around the country that are massive warehouses. They're, you know, 10,000 square meters. They're the size of the largest Tesco or or Asda, your out-of-town 
stores. And they feed a network of 61,000 what we call food pantries, what you call food banks around the country. They're places where people get a meal or, or pick up a, a bag of groceries. Uh, so most of that food is coming from uh, from corporations. It's coming from post-retail, from after the supermarket. It's coming from processors who made a mistake. Um, to motivate that, and, and they would, uh, the government doesn't really need to motivate it because companies get a lot of benefits from doing that. The government has offered tax breaks. And so it's about $200 million a year that uh, corporations receive in tax breaks for donating their food. And there's been recent law that... Um, Increases the amount of uh, food that they can that they can claim for their tax break. So what it th- that's a small part of the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that is that food is that food charity has become institutionalized in this country uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, part of it is because we have so much waste, and Americans are anathema to waste. So the waste. The supply is driving demand, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And the tax breaks just aggravate that situation. It's really gilding the lily for for corporations because they get so much out of donating food already between saving money on garbage disposal costs or rubbish disposal costs, as you would say, between... uh, you know, they get a lot of earned media. Every time they make a donation to the local food bank, they're going to get an article in the local newspaper claiming how wonderful they are as a hunger fighter rather than a hunger causer. You know, Walmart is just the worst example of this because they underpay their workers. Um, they tell them to go to, to food banks to help make up the difference in their salary. And then they get lots and lots of um, earned media. They get lots of, they get, you know, they bolster their reputation as a hunger fighter rather than a hunger causer. So, you know, their wages are so horrific. So why end hunger? There's no motivation to end hunger in this country. You know, it, hunger is good, is good for business. So, you know, corporations don't want to end hunger because it's, you know, they get a lot of, it's, it's, it's their corporate social responsibility to donate food and it makes them look good rather than bad because, you know, frankly, their wages are often pretty or horrific. So whose responsibility is it to feed the kids, feed people who are struggling with food poverty? You know, ultimately it should be the government's. Uh, every other nation in the world pretty much have signed on to a UN declaration of the right to food. US is pretty much the only country that hasn't done so. So it's it's consistently over the past 50 years denied its its responsibility um, to guarantee its citizens the right to food. So it ultimately it really is the the government's responsibility to do so, but it's abdicated that responsibility and the nonprofit sector and corporate America have stepped up to fill in the to fill in the holes with lots of collateral damage along the way. And you can find out much more from the Food Foundation website as well as nchildfoodpoverty.org. And you'll find the podcast on both sites. Next week, we'll meet the young people who put their ideas for a fairer food system to Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy. I'll see you then.